baseball fans. Welcome to Sully Baseball. This is the podcast where there is no offseason. We talk about baseball 52 weeks out of the year. I'm your host, Paul Francis Sullivan. Please call me Sully. I'm recording this from the luxurious and beautiful Sully Baseball Studios in Pasadena, California, overlooking the historic Rose Bowl. Let me tell you something. I am over the moon thrilled with my guest today. I've had on players before. I've had on people before. I've had on actors and comedians. This one is one that ah, I'm just really, really happy about because he's played on some teams that I really, really remember well and rooted very, very hard for. He is the former center fielder for the three-time National League East champion Pittsburgh Pirates and is now the host of his own podcast called View from Center Field. He's been an all-star, he's been a gold glove winner, and he's played, he's been on the field and on deck for some of the great classic moments of the 1980s and 1990s. It's my great thrill to introduce former St. Louis Cardinal, former Pittsburgh Pirate, and fellow podcaster, Andy Van Slyke. You're desperate for guests, put it that way. If you suck so low to get me on your show. That's right, that's right. I say, I take a look at this guy and say, how many gold gloves does this guy win? What? Not, a, not enough. Not enough. Yes. Not enough. I had Lonnie Smith on, for goodness sakes. Do you know what I mean? He's someone who, who could play center field, too. And so, <laughs> yeah, right. I, I, think for, I think for about an hour and a half, he was your teammate. So, I mean, that was... Uh, he actually... He, he was my teammate twice and two different. He was actually in Pittsburgh also. I totally forgot. That's right. He was there in the 93 team. I totally forgot that. Yeah, for part and of the season, yes. I want to just thank you for being part of this show here today. And I want to just say something. Just I want to get this out of the way right now. Even though I am a native New Englander and a Red Sox fan, one of my favorite teams has always been the Pirates because of the We Are Family Pirates and everything. And – if you had seen me during the 90, 91, and 92 postseason, you would have just assumed I grew up in Pittsburgh, you, even though I had never stepped foot in the city at that point. I was so passionately crazy about rooting for that particular team that it was kind of bananas. And so having you on this show is a, a real genuine thrill for me because I love those teams so much. They were they were. In my opinion, the best team that never won. I, you could make a great case for that. Yes, you could. When you look at the, you know, we had a gold glove catcher. We had a gold glove shortstop. We had a gold glove left fielder. We had a gold glove center fielder. We had a Cy Young Award winner all on the same team at the same time. So yeah. that's pretty good. And one of the things I remember, I, I'll, I'll jump right into it because I'm geeking out on the, the early Pirate teams. I mean, I, I will – you know, full disclosure, I was always a giant Bonds fan. I always just loved watching Bonds. I never met the man. I never will meet the man. I felt watching him was like, it was poetry in motion, watching him play. Beyond that, I felt just the entire team, beyond just being talented, for an outsider was just insanely easy to root for. You know, guys like Jose Lind or you or... Bonilla or Gary Reedus or Lavalier, all these guys are like, oh, I like that guy. I hope he wins. And that was one of the reasons why I kind of kept building up. There was a never-ending Alex Cole, uh, uh, Bob Walk, all these guys who were just 
likable beyond just being good players. You're just easy to root for as an outsider. And I'm, well, that's an interesting uh, observation because inside the clubhouse, we kind of felt the same way. I mean, we had a very unique clubhouse, I think, mm-hmm. uh, a, a clubhouse for a few years that I had never experienced anywhere, not in high school, not uh, not in professional ball. And having coached, I had never saw it on the teams I coached. Uh, when I worked for ESPN, I went in and saw teams, uh, a variety of teams when I was working for that. Never saw the environment inside the clubhouse uh, was as uh, likable and enjoyable. It was as good as we played on the field. So it was a really nice mixture both on and off the field. Now, having said that, I don't think they correlate to success on the field, but it makes it makes the work environment that much more enjoyable for the players it's because there have been teams in the history of the game who have had fights inside a clubhouse, and yet when they step on the field, they fight for each other. So um, it's an interesting contrast when you can have success, when you have continuity in the clubhouse and con- not have continuity in the clubhouse. It's uh, So there's no magic formula that translates onto the field. Yeah, I mean, I'm working on a writing project now about the 72 postseason, and a brawl broke out in the clubhouse during – the celebration of the American League pennant. When the A's won, a fight broke out, not amongst the Tigers and the A's, amongst the A's sure. as they were celebrating the, winning the American League pennant. So you're right. It, you know, uh, a happy clubhouse does not necessarily mean success. No. But just from, you know, from an outsider, you know, like me, I was a schmuck in college watching the games. You know, I, I was, I liked John Smiley and, and, you know, Lloyd McClendon and, and Don Slott, they're all guys, Gary Reedus, they all just seemed like guys that I'm like, oh, man, they'd be they'd be fun to play with. They'd be fun to hang out with. And even though I was never going to hang out with them, it just felt that way as a fan. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's, you know, I mean, there's always a couple guys you probably wouldn't choose on a team, but overall your perception is correct. You know, you can't not root for a guy named Spanky. I mean, Spanky sure. Levi, I mean, just by, by, I mean, he, and he looked like Spanky. I mean, you couldn't have someone who looks like Alex Cole be called right. Spanky. Well, we had nicknames in the clubhouse. We had Spanky. I was slick. Or Don Slot mm-hmm. was, was the professor. Um, why, wait, why was he the professor? I never oh, heard that. Oh, because one. he went to UCLA. And he, he always thought he was the smartest guy in the team. He was one <laughs> of those guys that, you know, I mean, some, the really smart guys, when they walk in a room, they don't yeah. have to tell you the smartest guys. You just kind of know it. It's the guys that, that have to tell you or have yeah. to show you. Yeah. Um, uh, but at the same time, he was also um, socially really, really, really uneducated. I mean, he was just <laughs> – I mean, I'll tell you a story. We we uh, we used to take Don Slot to dinner, and I yeah. went to a magic store and bought uh, um, six quarters – that were heads on both sides, and I would hand them out to the guys, and I'd say, "Let's, we're going to flip to see who pays for dinner tonight." And so <laughs> we keep flipping until Don Slot flipped tails, and he would lose every every time he went out to dinner. And these guys would keep their quarters in their pockets. So the next time we went out to dinner, and Don couldn't understand after a full season, he had paid for ten dinners because <laughs> he eventually he always lost on tails. <laughs> that does not fare well for UCLA. Uh, oh. I gotta say. So we felt so bad at the end of the season. We finally told him, and we all chipped in a hundred bucks and gave a gave him a hundred bucks. Oh, but yeah, that team. I mean the the team 
I mean, I, I guess people remember the 92 team because sadly how it ended. But the team that I remember the most for whatever reason was that 91 squad that wound up winning 98 games. And every you had a great year that year. Um, obviously, uh, Bonds and Benia were superstars. And the thing that was amazing is the if, if you look back on that, and I'm, I'm sure you have. I'm talking about the people listening. If you look back on that team – they didn't really have a Cy Young winner. Drabeck actually had a poor first half. And he had a great yes, second but he, half. He had, he, he had Cy Young in his back pocket already, though. Yeah, he had won it the year before. Right. But the depth on that pitching staff between Zane Smith and Smiley and Walk and Belinda and Lamp, like there was – it just was – it wasn't like they had the one dominant Clayton Kershaw type. They no. just had – it we was just – And we now saw, you got to remember, had no ninth inning pitcher either. Right, but really you had a you had a bunch of really good guys in that pitching staff that that just pitched well good. all year. Right, yeah, they were good, but we didn't have that. Uh, you know, we didn't have a Jansen closing out the game, and yeah. we didn't have a Verlander in the starting rotation that year. And yet, um, we found ways to win games. I think first of all, defensively, then offensively, then pitching last. But uh, yeah. you know, if if uh, if you had taken an average defensive team. Uh, mm-hmm. And try to put it on the field. Uh, they might have won eighty-eight games instead of nine. We literally won ten games defensively. That's how good we were. I can I can believe that. And that yeah. was a I mean, and it was a it was an amazing. I mean, I'm not going to try to bring up bad memories here, but that was a bunch of one-run games against Atlanta, including three one-to-nothing finals, right. uh, which were just shows how you know, how close that series was. Well, it shows you how dominant Atlanta, Atlanta starting pitching was, is really what yeah. it comes down to. They really, uh, by far, the the hardest week of my career to ever try to face uh, Major League Pitching was against the Atlanta Braves. Their starting yeah. pitching was just that good. You know, it's unfortunate that 91 team was the yeah. best team uh, of the era. But, yeah. inter- you know, the interesting thing about the 92 team, we weren't as good but we right. it's interesting we were a better team and i it's hard to explain why mm-hmm. but uh there was just something about the 92 team uh the character the i don't know if it was the confidence but when we we went up 3-1 against atlanta i i thought for sure we, we were going to win one more game and we just couldn't get it done but the 92 team a better yeah. team but not as talented yeah well i can understand that. i mean at that point you would i was living in new york at the time and Bonilla had signed with the Mets, and um, and there was a sense that well, that's it for the Pirates, and you know Bonds had just a, a, a phenomenal season. You had one of the best seasons of your career. Ninety-two you, was a good year, yes. Yeah, I mean you batted three twenty-four that year. Your OPS was I have a, I, this is I I have your stats in front of me. I don't have them memorized. Uh, but your OPS was eight eight six, although no one knew that back then, and. You had good power numbers. You had good speed numbers. But it was your job. You know, you had now had Bonds batting behind you. Yeah. And you had basically, if I remember, I mean, if I remember correctly, there was just a revolving door in right field of the Alex Coles and the Lloyd McClendons yes. and the the Gary Varshows of the world. And somehow that meant – 96 wins, which was as many as Toronto did when went on to win the World Series. Right. Exactly. It uh, it was, you know, it 
if you look at uh, statistically, you know, obviously the game is looked, I think, uh, too much statistically, analytically today. But yeah. an- an- statistically, analytically today, there wasn't much production out of right field, but it didn't seem right. to matter. And we, it wasn't a, an overall concern, I think, for the team. We just we just knew that uh, whoever was in right field was the best player for the for that particular night for our particular team against a particular uh, opponent. And we just it doesn't matter uh, who played. You know, would you rather have Benia in right field instead of Gary Varshaw? Oh, absolutely. And Gary Varshaw would be the first one to say, "Take me out of the lineup." <laughs> and but so right. it was. Uh, but it it was just one of those things we accepted. We knew Bobby was moving on. We knew the Pirates were not going to pay Bobby uh, right. Benia, so we accepted it, and we did not let that for one minute uh, to get in the way of a goal of repeating and, and moving on to the World Series. As a, as a, again, as a native New Englander and a lifelong Red Sox fan, you guys had Tim Wakefield on that team, who at, yes. the, point, at the time was a total unknown, and he wound up going eight and one out of the rotation, and probably would have been the National League Championship Series most valuable player. Yes, had they got the final out in that in that ninth inning. Yes, yes. I mean, no, there's Wake, no question about that. He would have Wakefield been. threw he, two complete game victories. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. It was, uh, you know, and and at the time, you know, he he, he comes up and 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 the, the, the interesting about uh, about Tim Wakefield is um, he he did not have the confidence that he had when he pitched in Boston. So he was yeah. learning. He was learning uh, on the job. But he uh, he ran into a, a hot streak and he ran with it. And the interesting thing was that the manager. Which uh, Jim Lehman will tell you the hardest guy to manage is a knuckleball pitcher because right. you know how can you tell when he's lost it? You can't. I mean that's the one thing about a knuckleball pitcher because you know he can give up four hits in a row, uh, you give up four doubles in a row, and for most starting pitchers, you know that's it. But you know he can go another five innings without having a ball leave the infield. So um, it. it uh, he definitely saved our hide because if it wasn't for Tim Wakefield, uh, there's no way we would have even been in the position we were. Yeah, because for those of you who don't remember that year, the Pirates, as you said, were uh, a team that were coming off of a 98-win season, which they the, the lost the National Championship Series, razor-thin National League Championship Series to the um, Atlanta Braves. But the next year... Um, it was you guys were in an absolute dogfight through July with the Montreal Expos, and then you went on. Wait, it was like a ten-game winning streak or something like that. Something up, nature. I'm not exactly sure, but it was. But but that was like and just took just absolutely said, okay, everyone, enough. We're done. Right. It's, it's time to win the division. Um, and which was you know it, it was interesting because I can remember. Uh, Jim Leland, who hates meetings, you know, he, he's not one of those, uh, you know, win one for the Gipper type of mentality because in baseball that doesn't really work. You know, there's no rah-rah that makes you, makes you play harder or smarter. But um, he, he had a meeting, and I'll never forget it. He says, if you think I'm going to, you know, stand here or sit here and watch you guys play below what you're going to, 
you're capable of playing and think you're just going to walk into the playoffs, you got another thing coming. He says, I'll start benching every one of you guys and, and get guys in there who want to win games. And, you know, it was interesting. It was almost like we thought we had we won the right to go to the playoffs, and he really turned our focus uh, inward and made it outward and said, listen, the bigger picture is that you really ha- mentally have to be ready to win every night. And it, and it really made a big difference in the way we approached uh, the rest of the season mentally. I want to pull up. I pulled up one game here because I found it interesting. It was it was in it was right at the beginning of that ten game winning streak where you guys just really put on the aft thrusters and and put away what what turned out to be a very talented Montreal team. Oh, very talented, extremely you know, talented. Yeah, I mean, they would have won the World Series if there was no strike in '94, probably. Right, but. But you, there was a game, I don't know if you remember it or not, but it was in early August against St. Louis. And this, to me, epitomizes what that team was like. You were, you were playing St. Louis. It was a one nothing game in the bottom of the ninth, or in the bottom of the ninth with Lee Smith, who was no, uh, not exactly the easiest closer to get a hit off of. And you started a one-out rally with an infield single. Yep. And stole a base. Yep. And with two outs and still down one nothing, King singled and Don Slot singled and you guys won 2 to 1. Two to and one. the thing thing that I look at with that game is you had Bob Walk who was a starter coming out of the bullpen. You had players like um Alex Cole and Slot and Orlando Merced all contributing. This was this wasn't Bonds hitting a two-run homer in the bottom of the ninth. This was a scraped together, you know, grinded out win against one of the greatest closers of all time. Yeah, and you know, it's interesting. You 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 tell that story and you you paint that scenario. Those are the types of games you do not see one today. You know, yeah. you don't see guys getting a, a one-out single, infield single, stealing second on on the first opportunity because Lee yeah. Smith was so late, and then guy a guy getting the base hit. Guy throwing the ball home, trying to throw you out, and the guy that hit the ball ends up in second base because there was an overthrow, and now he's in scoring position with one out. And then, and before you know it, the game's over. You know, and that that's the part of Major League Baseball that I miss today is is those types of plays. Now they do happen. I'm not saying that. But no, but, the, it, but it was more, whole, it was more common back then. Sure, it was more common, and it was it was a part of the game that was was vital you know when you put a team together those are the types of things that you you did see you know the the, the fact that the uh, that the ball's going further the fact that the, every major league team is now grass um there's so much emphasis on power uh there's no no emphasis on striking out striking out is is a is a thing of the past it's it's not even it's there's no more shame in striking out right. so it's a totally different game and it, it, it's a game that I miss, and I think it's a game that a lot of purists miss. I don't know if I would call myself a purist, but I do agree with you, and you made a great point um, in that recollection, in that is one of the things I remember about I, – I grew up on baseball in the 80s, so that's my nostalgia is baseball in the 80s and the, and the early 90s. And there were – there was a lot more emphasis on speed and also because so many teams – we're on the artificial surface. Sure, you, had, you know Cincinnati. Say obviously St. Louis won three pennants with the jackrabbits running around. You know from going first to third on singles. Uh, that night, think about this: that 1985 World Series team. Yeah, th- almost was, 320 stolen bases. 
It's unbelievable. As a team. There's teams that won't steal 320 bases in a decade now. <laughs> I've, been a Red a Sox fan. I've been a Red Sox fan my whole life. I don't think I've seen 300 Red Sox steals in my lifetime. <laughs> so it's a totally different game. And um, it's a, you know what's really amazing is because of that particular season, now managers – uh, understood that it was such a what such a threat that they could actually control. You can't control major league power. When a guy steps to the plate, no manager can control the guy hitting the ball the ballpark. But the right. one thing a manager can do is teach, or an organization, I should say, mm-hmm. any major league organization can teach the, their pitchers to hold the ball longer, make their time home slower, I mean, make their time quicker, and because of that, the fact that the game had so much speed, it's actually slowed the game down, which is really yeah. interesting. I think that when you, you look at the way that you had to build a team, you had made a reference to the 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 great defense that you had. And obviously you have any team that has, you know, leaned and and Jay Bell and all the you know, the great you in center field. I'll throw you in. You won your gold gloves, you're allowed to I can throw you in there. The great you know, and Bonds was at his peak, one of the great left hand one of the great defensive left fielders in history absolutely uh, you know you had to do that because the ball was so fast on the infield you had to have that that it was the idea you couldn't have a a ron kittle and no no offense to ron kittle but you couldn't have a ron kittle in left field sort of you know lumbering around because of the type of game that was played on the astroturf yes unless unless you know your left fielder who you know can hit 50 home runs that's different but yeah overall you're you're correct you back then the game required uh speed to cut off the balls in the gap and save runs because you know when, when things go bad in the outfield the other team are, is scoring runs so right. question that you, you back then that you had to have a guy uh, defensively at least be average and if he was average he needed to hit the ball the ballpark doing that all right let me just uh we'll we, I've given you a love fest on on those pirate teams, just because I just I'm not going to ask about the postseason and everything, but because that was that I, I it was frustrating for me, and I didn't even live in Pittsburgh. I can't imagine what it must have been like for you know you guys, just such a wonderful team coming so close each one of those years, you know, and to just falling you know a little bit short. But um, yeah, I, I was devastated in '92. You would have thought I grew up in Pittsburgh. I was so sad. Well, but, the, 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 here's the thing. I think you know a, a guy like you, and obviously, I knew it at a, at a greater depth uh, mm-hmm. than any fans would ever know. We knew that that last play was it yeah. for the Pirates. Yeah. We knew the time was up. The door, the window had been slammed shut because the uh, the philosophy, which is still runs true today that ownership is not going to pour a lot of money into maybe that something might happen. They have to have it happen almost by, by accident in Pittsburgh because they're just not going to pay the players either to keep them around or to build a team. They, I don't know if they don't have the finances. I don't know if their philosophy is to make money only. Uh, I am not part of that, but we knew that th- when the window was shut, that was it. And I didn't realize it was going to be 20 years. Right. But, uh, the window was 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 nailed shut for 20 years in Pittsburgh. And there's that. I mean, there's that famous shot of you just kind of sitting with your hat kind of pulled over your eyes in center field after the Cabrera hit. Mm-hmm. And 
I mean, I didn't see it live. I shut the television off. I was in my dorm room at New York University, and I shut the TV off. Um, and I hated the. I just like anyone listening to podcasts knows. I hated the Braves. I just I never I never liked the Braves. They're not a likable team to begin with. I don't no. know what it is about the Braves. I no, don't even know not. what it's. I mean, even even Atlanta fans, they're they're they're, they're different. They're they're. I mean, are, are there purists down there? Yeah, but you got to remember, most people through the seventies, eighties, and nineties, and when they, when they had their run, they weren't native uh, Georgians. They were people from all over the country that had to adopt the Braves. Right. And I think there was, you know, you sensed it even when you went to a game in Atlanta that the only thing that Braves fans were good at was chopping. I mean. <laughs> That was it. You know, they they weren't any good at knowing the game, and they didn't really, I don't think, really understood the game at the depth that they would in Boston or St. Louis or even in Chicago, even though Chicago could never win for a century. I mean, they just, there was just something that was sort of like, it was kind of like the thing to do. And it wasn't really just a a real emotional love connection that you have in Boston or St. Louis. Well, I had TBS on my cable for years, and I saw – Braves games where there were more people listening to this podcast than there were sitting in that stadium. Absolutely. And, and then all of a sudden it becomes the one thing to do in the South. And I'm going to say something. I'm not going to get you in trouble. I'll say it. I'm suspicious of any fan base that has to be told how and when to cheer. You know, <laughs> yeah. there are no instructions in St. It's, Louis. It's sort of like when, you know, you know, you're watching Jeopardy and the applause sign comes on. Yeah. And you're sitting there watching Alex Trebek, you know, we're taking the commercial break and the applause sign comes on. That was sort of like the feeling when you're in Atlanta. It's a laugh track. You know, I don't need a laugh track to tell me when something's funny. And I don't need a rally monkey or a chop to tell me when to cheer. Right, right. Yeah, it was, uh, it's it's a different environment. But uh, who can, uh, you know, it's. It's hard to, it's really hard to criticize their success because they did something right. They just oh, never, yeah. I mean, they, uh, they figure out how to get the players on the field. I mean, and the thing is the front officers can't control the environment inside the stadium, but they certainly did a great job controlling the atmosphere on the field as far as putting their players on. Well, you don't, I, I want to really dislike the Atlanta Braves. As I point out to someone, you don't dislike a team that's bad. You know, you don't. No one's going to be sitting around this year going, "Man, I hate the Marlins." Yes. You know, it's 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 a sense of, you, of course. Well, I you, actually, I actually knew somebody who worked for the Braves before the the '91 season when they started drawing people. Yeah. I said, "Why don't you Why don't you have a, a promotion night where say come come to a Braves game and catch a foul ball because you will because nobody else is here." <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's funny you say that because when I was in. Around that time, I was wearing a pirate hat a lot in the early 90s and living in New York. I used to go to Shea Stadium when the Mets were horrible. And it was the only foul ball I ever got. in my. I've been to a billion baseball games. I got one foul ball, and that was at Shea Stadium. And believe me, I didn't have to fight anyone for it. I walked calmly to the chair it landed behind, and I picked it up because that's sure. what, you know, There's no one was at Shea. There's no yep. reason to go to Shea. Yeah, it's yeah. It's there was a time there where the you know the baseball would uh, would rattle off fifty seats before, I and mean, it actually would stop moving sometimes. Yeah, <laughs> my friend who was who used to go to games at um, at the Big O in Montreal used to say there was never a battle. We would just like we would even say, "Do you want that one, or should I go get it?" You calmly walk over to get it. Ah, uh, you get it. I got enough. <laughs> I ran out of nephews. Uh 
I, you've been really generous with your time, and I, and I want to thank you. I want to bring up one last name. I, we've mentioned him a few times, but I got to ask about him because he's again one of my favorite figures in baseball. Is Jim Leland, who I believe belongs in the Hall of Fame. I agree, hundred percent. I think he eventually will. You know, the fact that he took three teams to the postseason and three teams that weren't exactly powerhouses to the postseason, and he did so. As you mentioned in 92, didn't always have the best talent around him, didn't always have the superstars around him, and yet managed to play the sort of shell game with the R.J. Reynolds and the Gary Reedises and the John Cangelosis of the world to win 90 games with three different franchises. Yes. Unbel- and You know, and I think, unfortunately, if, you know, if, I mean, the again, the, the 2006 Tigers – were a better team than the St. Louis Cardinals were. I mean, if we had played them, you know, 10 games uh, a week earlier in the season, because you know, we had a week off and I think that really killed us. It's really hard to step away from Major League Baseball at that speed for a whole week. It just people cannot appreciate the differential between practicing baseball and playing it on an everyday basis. And because we had won in four games against the Oakland A's, we sat around for a week. The Cardinals had to play seven games, and and then a couple days later, they're right back in into the ring. We sat out for a week, and it killed us. And because of that, um, we did not play anywhere near it was the worst. It was actually the worst games that we had played the whole year was in the World Series. So, um, if if I think if if we win that World Series, if Jim Leland w- would unequivocally be in the Hall of Fame today, I think he deserves it no matter what. Though no, I'm I mean, not, I don't disagree with you. I'm just saying that's the perception, unfortunately, that hangs over yeah. a manager that he didn't get his team to you know to the promised land. Well. He, mean, can't he, did, contr- he, did he couldn't control, you know, being that good, our team playing that well. He can, he, he can only control when the game starts, and once it starts, his players just did not play at the level. It had nothing to do with his management. Yeah, I don't know. I just I, I I mean I you and I are in agreement. You know, he when he won the World Series with with in Miami or with I guess they were Florida back then. Um, at that moment, he tied Earl Weaver with World Series championships. He tied Leo DeRocher with World Series championships. You know, he 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 tied Bobby Cox in World Series championships. All these managers who no one blinks to put in the Hall of Fame. He, Whitey, you know, Whitey, yeah. only won one. What, won Whitey one. Herzog only won one. That's right. Yeah, Whitey Herzog only. Yeah, that's sort of at some point you say, hey, he he did enough. And there was there was a moment I was rooting for Cleveland against the Marlins just because at that point. I just felt the city of Cleveland needed a hug in terms of its baseball, in terms of its sports. Um, it, I'm less, uh, uh, I'm less worried about the people of Cleveland since the Cavaliers won. But at that point, it was still they hadn't won since whenever, and I was rooting hard for them. But I will say there was a moment that I, I remembered after, after the World Series was over, and I saw Leland basically jump into Bobby Bonilla's arms, and Bobby Bonilla was kind of carrying him around at one point. Yes, and yes, yeah. that I have to admit, I started, I had a lump in my throat because I started thinking of those great pirate teams from the early nineties and knowing that Benio was such a big part of that. And again, I don't know Bobby, I'll never meet Bobby, but the fact that the two of them clearly had a moment like, yeah, okay, 
we finally won. We didn't win in Pittsburgh, but at least we won. Mm-hmm. And I, I, do you, when you watch games now, do you ever, do you used to have moments where you have connections with either former teammates or people you, you know, played with or played against that, that give you some sort of emotional connection? Uh, well, every now and then, absolutely. You know, I, I remember that moment and I was thinking how unfortunate that that wasn't in a pirate uniform. And I, th- yeah. and I, and I don't know if Jim Leon, I want to speak for Jim Leon, but I think I know well enough to know that deep down in his heart, uh, that he wished he had a different ball cap on that day. I'm not taking it. It has nothing to do with him not enjoying the moment winning the world series for the Marlins. But, uh, if, if he had his choice, I think he would have much rather had a pee on top of his hat. Yeah. I'll tell you, I mean, I'm not going to go too deep in dive on that particular team, but it seems like that entire team that won was filled with guys who won their title. And it's like, well, I would have rather won it with another team. Like, you know, Moises Alou, Kevin Brown, Al Leiter. There's a bunch of guys. Well, I wish, like Alex Fernandez, I wish I won it as a White Sox. But, hey, it's still a World Series. That's what, it should say that on the ring. Hey, it's still a World Series ring, you know. Yeah, because yeah. that team was broken up during the parade. I think was about, <laughs> <laughs> they didn't even get to the city hall before they were all wearing different hats. You they know? got their yeah. They all got traded or released <laughs> after after the confetti was thrown. Yeah, I mean, in fact, at city hall, they were all handed their new hats. You're now an Astro. You're now a Padre. You got to enjoy it for a couple of days. Goodbye. Yeah. <laughs> the next thanks year, for coming. Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, you're defending world champion Marlins. Come see them when they arrive in Florida with other teams, you know. Oh, man. Hey, I, I really – I can't thank you enough. And by the way, um, I am now a subscriber to uh, View from Center Field, which is your podcast. Uh, and I've listened, I listened to the first three episodes. You dropped a new one today with uh, Ricky Horton, who is your yes. teammate with the yes. Cardinals. And – Actually, if I'm not mistaken, he won a, uh, hey, at least it's a World Series ring, not with the Cardinals, but with the Dodgers in Correct. 1988. So he didn't get to win with the Cardinals, but hey, he still won, he and John Tudor won one. Yeah, as, it's funny. Never, never, never glowingly talks about winning the World Series, which is interesting. He always, when he talks baseball, he always speaks glowingly about his time in St. Louis, even though he yeah. lost two World Series, you know, one, one in 87 and one in 85. Yeah. Again, you know, those are the those are the moments you wish you could share. Uh, you know, he came up with the Cardinals, drafted by you know all his friends were were, were St. Louis. So yeah, those are the moments that you wish you could share. But you know that's that's the nature of the game. You move on and you you, you do your job and you try to win the World Series for the team you're playing with. Yeah, and um, you know he he won one not with the not with the right team, but he still won one. And uh, but and for those of you who like baseball if you're listening to this podcast i have a hunch that you like baseball and you want to hear baseball told from the point of view of someone who's been there (laughs) but also i gotta say one thing i love about listening to the first three episodes of your show which um is it's a very honest show it's not a super polished show like your like fox you know before the game or something like that where you know everyone has their sound bites they're supposed to say but it's also not like something which i really dislike is when someone tries to be shocking or tries to i'm gonna do a hot take and <laughs> you know like and because you're trying to get clicks or something like that so i'm gonna just say this which is controversial it's just 
listening to people talk baseball who love baseball and being honest about it. And it is a genuine, honest, good, solid baseball podcast, which if you listen, I, I recommend everyone subscribe to it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your show. It's called View from Center Field. And it's uh, I, I'm a I'm we're just starting. We're just in the starting block. So yeah, I got a lot to learn. Uh, and Paul, you've uh, obviously you've done, I guess, over a thousand now of these. Oh, I've so. done I've done uh, about nearly two thousand of these. Yeah. Okay. So. Excuse me. I, I, <laughs> I don't, I'm sorry. Paul, <laughs> we got our stats. Now. We got our stats. That's my, that's me. I knowing know, what I, I didn't know there were I didn't know there were analytical stats for podcasts, but I'm learning again. On the this is a learning curve for me. So this is something. My war is I high. Enjoy my it. podcast war is very high right now. So. All right. Well, you know, it, given the opportunity, if uh, like you did today, if I run out of guests, I'm going to give you a call. <laughs> you know what? That That is my it would be my absolute pleasure. And uh, this has been Andy Van Slyke, the, the, the Andy Van Slyke, uh, as known in the great website. Where have you gone? Andy Van Slyke. You, you know about that, right? The podcast. I have heard it. about it and I have not researched it. And I'm yeah, afraid it, this. It, no, it's it's loving. It's it's basically pirate. It's basically pirate talk. And when it was formed, the guys who formed it were longing for the days of, you know, Bonds and Van Slyke and Drabeck and everything. And, and, and a I nice guess- and a nice quote every now and then, right? Exactly, exactly. So it's getting. The, it, you know, that's the one thing. It's unfortunate with all the media coverage there is in today's game. Yeah, I think. It, uh, some of the color has been lost in these players. Are, and, and again, we you know we live in such a politically correct uh, society. Now guys are afraid to say some of the things that I never thought twice about saying. And yeah. if I were playing today, I might not say, say some of the things I used to say. I mean, I mean, can you imagine, you know, I mean, I was once highly criticized in the front office of Pittsburgh Pirates came to me and say, would you recant? what you said yesterday. I said, absolutely not. I'm not going to recant. It's what I think. And I still believe it today. And the question was, do you think one of the reporters came up to me and asked me if I thought Michael Jordan had a chance of playing the major league level. And I said, you know, that's an (laughs) insulting question. I said, there'll be peace in the middle East before Michael Jordan (laughs) plays, plays major league baseball. And I have a better chance of backing up BJ Armstrong, the starting point guard for the bulls than he does playing for major league baseball. And, and you weren't and then, wrong. You know, it's, it's true. It's so true. And what's wrong with saying it? Yeah, you know, everybody's worried. Of, you know, it's like this Tim Tebow thing. The Mets sending him the double A is a joke. Yeah. It's an yeah. absolute joke. It's 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 actually insulting to the game of baseball to me. Yeah. I mean, it'd be like me trying to go, you know, back up for the Rams as, as a quarterback when I'm 35 years old or whatever Tebow is, 30 years old. Just because I, I can throw, just because I can throw a baseball from home plate over the center field wall, doesn't mean I can be a quarterback. If if Tebow tried out and earned his spot, I would have no issue. I'd be like, you know what? Fine, you earned it. You know, it, but if you're a Met fan and you know that there's a spot on the Double A roster that's being filled out for what is basically an opportunity to sell some seats at the Double A stadium instead of someone who could. You know the Mets need as many young, good players on their team as possible. Uh, I uh, that's what I personally have a problem with. I mean, again, if he earned his spot, and oh, it turns out he's it turns out he is good enough. I then just, I, I, I have no issue. But it's this is just a way to sell tickets at Double A. 
Yeah, and it's you know I I don't get it. It's something I would never I would never venture into something I didn't think I could get to the top to. I just wouldn't. That's just not how I made up. So, I mean, for him to put a baseball uniform on, it's got to be. It would be put it this way: if I put some basketball shorts on when, you know, when I was thirty, and I was a good high school basketball player, yeah, and, and showed up at a Bulls camp, yeah, it, I would be embarrassed. It's what you I, said. That, you you were a good high school basketball player. Everyone has to remember the tenth player on the worst team is a great basketball player. You know, <laughs> and he can't even see time. Right, you know? he can't like even play. A guy of the Memphis Grizzlies who can't get playing time is better than anyone you ever grew up with. Or no, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> he is amazing. That's one of the things I always talk about when, like. Like when we talk about baseball players, oh, that guy stinks or this guy stinks. Like, you realize that person, if they made it to the majors, they are extraordinary. <laughs> so they yeah. are, you, so- you can't, Paul, I can't tell you how many guys I ran into. They'll tell me they were a really good baseball player, but they couldn't hit the curve. <laughs> then you weren't a good baseball player. <laughs> no, the fact is you couldn't hit a fastball. <laughs> Let alone the curve. You're trying to tell me you could hit something that's harder to hit than a curveball. The curveball is easier to hit. It doesn't. It's not thrown as hard. Don't tell me you couldn't hit the curveball. I'll tell you when I had my epiphany, and then I'll 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 let you go because you've been very very generous with your time. I when I was a little kid, I had one dream, and that was to be. I wanted to be the bullpen closer. I thought that was the coolest position. It's because I love Tug McGraw and Kent Colby, but I I thought it was so badass that you come out of the bullpen to shut down the game i thought that was the coolest position in baseball and that's what i wanted i want to be the bullpen closer for the red Sox. and i came out of the bullpen in a game in little league in seventh grade and adam alexander of western massachusetts little league hit a home run off of me that landed somewhere in the forest i think it went through the stratosphere he just crushed the shit out of this ball and I actually remembered standing on the mound, I must have been 12, thinking, if I can't strike out Adam Alexander, what am I going to do against George Brett? What am I going to do against Al Oliver? What am I going to do against Cecil Cooper? They'll kill me. I, I know better... what you're going to do. You're going you're gonna to watch them from the stands. That's what you're going to do. You're darn right. I better <laughs> learn the stats and the numbers and learn how to write about it because I sure as hell am not going to pitch past anyone, you know. <laughs> And I think I made the right choice. Andy yep. Vance, like, I am thrilled that I can say thank you for being my guest. And, and, and frankly, thank you for so many great memories and being part of so many great, memorable years. And just as a fan, just thanks for all that wonderful moments. Well, I appreciate it. You're welcome. And, and for those of you who are baseball fans and baseball fans around my age, uh, subscribe to uh, Andy Van Slyke View from Center Field. It's, I'm looking at it right now on my iPhone. Uh, he has a brand new episode today. I'm probably going to drop this on Tuesday the 27th. And so check it out. There's a brand new episode with world champion Rick Horton. Just don't call him world champion Cardinal Rick Horton. And just listen to it for some really good, solid baseball talk. So Andy Van Slyke, thank you for being part of the Sully Baseball Podcast. Uh, you can go visit me on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, SoundCloud, YouTube, Twitter, Stitcher, Instagram. I'm everywhere. You can be old school. Send me an email at info at sullybaseball.com. The music is by Ted Thacker and Patrick Kaliski. Talking baseball with the Andy Vance. Like this is the Sully Baseball Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Francis Sullivan. Please call me Sully. <laughs>